0: It was a day that brought Westminster to a standstill.
1: Tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. Did you hear him say, let the
0: bodies pile high in their thousands, or it's only killing 80-year-olds?
1: I heard that in the Prime Minister's
2: study. OK, next question. Not...
0: The words of the former Downing Street advisor echoed far beyond Parliament.
3: How many people was there willing to... Sacrifice? To sacrifice.
4: What if it happened to one of their children?
5: I just put myself into the shoes of the relatives of those people and the hearing <laughs> it just it just sent chills, chills down my spine. The denials
6: quickly followed.: Some of the, the commentary I've heard uh, doesn't bear any relation to reality. So what's the truth?
0: And for the families of those who died, what are the questions still left unanswered? You're listening to stories of our times from The Times and the Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, failures of state, the Dominic Cummings evidence.
6: Good morning, Mr. Cummings, and thank you for offering to appear.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I think it's when the public needed us most, the government failed. I'm Norman Wellington.
0: I'm Jerry Maninter. Well, thanks so much for doing this, both of you. We really appreciated it the last time you spoke to us, too. I know it's not an easy thing to talk about.
1: I'd like to say to all the families of those who uh, who died, unnecessarily, how sorry I am for uh, the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that.
0: As Dominic Cummings began nearly seven hours of evidence in Westminster, in Walsall, near Birmingham, Jane and Norman Wellington found much of it too difficult to watch.
4: It's all right apologising. It's ain't going to change I think.
0: In November, they lost their son, Cameron, to the second wave of the virus. He was just 19. The Wellingtons are one of several bereaved families we spoke to last week, who you'll hear from throughout this episode.
4: We shouldn't be having to have this conversation. My son should still be here. A lot of families their loved ones should still be here.
0: I first spoke to Jane and Norman just before Christmas.
4: He was really fun to be around, energetic. He had a lot of time for his little brothers and sisters. He was really kind. He was a nice lad. He was a genuine lad. For Cameron, it began with a
0: cough. The family called NHS 111, who told him to rest.
4: The cough, just started getting worse, and he kept struggling for breath.
0: A week later, Cameron's symptoms had got worse. Jane took him straight to hospital.
4: told him he'd be okay, and I says, I'll pick you back up later. told him I loved him, and he he walked in. I went back home while I was waiting, and within five minutes of me getting back home, the nurse told me to get straight back down. His oxygen levels was 10% put him on the oxygen and he just never come back out of it.
0: After days of intensive treatment, Jane and Norman got an urgent call from the hospital.
3: They phone us back up again saying, you need to get down here quick. It's getting worse.
0: That must have been such a difficult journey.
3: Yeah, it, it was the worst, I've got to tell you. Anyway, when we got there they'd give us the bad news, really. They just says, look, we're sorry we've done everything we can. But his organs are failing
4: now. I even asked them if they'd cut out my organs and give them to Cam instead. But there was nothing else they could do. I said he could take anything off me, just make sure they lease. God, that that must have been so hard. Yeah. We
3: just don't know what to do. They told us in that room, they said we were sorry that you can go and sit with him for a, a couple of hours, but not that you'll ever be ready and then just tell us and we'll switch the machine off. He's not going to make it. He's, he's definitely going to die today, so just go and sit with him for a bit.
4: So we went in and there uh, and put the protection to, put the protection coats on. We sat with him a few hours down uh,
3: Yeah.
4: I held his hand and we was talking to him. And as we were talking to him, we noticed the colour going out of his hands.
3: Yeah, it's like a bruising that was coming through, on not it? Yeah. Where all the capillaries was breaking down. So we just looked at each other and said, it's, it's time we are not through it now more.
4: You never expected it? You? your own kids?
3: No, we was just numb at the time. We'd have we even know what was happening.
4: We stood behind the bed, all the doctors and nurses. And within a minute, about a minute and a half, he, he'd gone and we? I'm so sorry.
3: Thank you. How are you coping? It feels worse every day, to be honest.
4: They've got five other children and a grandson. But if it weren't for them, I don't think I would have carried on, to be honest. But I've got it for them.
3: Yeah, really. We've got to carry on.
0: It's been six months since Cameron died. Norman and Jane have been trying to make sense of what happened. In particular, why tens of thousands of people, including their son, lost their lives in the second wave.
1: By this point, unfortunately, the Prime Minister was listening to various people who were saying things like there's already herd immunity in the population, there won't be any second wave, etc., etc. There's a great misunderstanding people have that because it nearly killed him, therefore he must have taken it seriously. But in fact, after the first lockdown, his view was, we shouldn't have done the first lockdown and I'm not going to make the same mistake again.
3: It's what I expected him to come out with, really. I've been reading a book called Failures of State, so I won't surprised to hear what he did
7: say. I'm Jonathan Calvert, editor of the Sunday Times Insight team.
5: I'm George Arbuthnot, and I'm the deputy Insight editor.
0: Now, we've been promised an inquiry, but until that happens, you two are probably the people who've come closest to explaining what was happening behind the scenes. Earlier this year, you published your book, Failures of State, which analyzes everything that was going on in Number 10 and Westminster and where the mistakes were made. Going into last week, before eagerly anticipated evidence from Dominic Cummings, what did we know about his involvement and where he stood in the great Covid debate in number
7: 10? He tried to very much play down his power in that in his appearance before the Select Committee. He is there at the very key meetings and the very key decisions are all taken by a tiny number of people, which includes him and the Prime Minister, maybe a couple of others. So he was enormously powerful at the time. Back in our first article in in April uh, last year, which was all about how the government had been really poorly prepared for the pandemic and how they hadn't hit the ground running and how Boris Johnson had a nonchalant approach to it and wasn't really showing leadership on the virus. We wrote that Cummings had gone along with the initial policy, which was in effect herd immunity, and then he's suddenly become freaked out by the reports coming in from the scientists that there were going to be hundreds of thousands of deaths if they carried on along the lines that they were doing. And he had been quite instrumental nine or ten days before uh, the actual lockdown in persuading the prime minister to change his mind and go for a lockdown. But even then, the prime minister over the decision, and we lost many, many crucial days in which infections rose as a result. That was his position in the first wave. Once he'd had that, what
5: was described as a kind of domicine conversion at the time. From then on, we had written that he had been a proponent of taking swift action if infections began to rise again in the summer. And he had been a big proponent of the circuit breaker lockdown in September and was extremely disappointed that the Prime Minister hadn't taken his view. and that, And that had then soured their relations going forward. So... We knew that much, but he certainly um, put a lot more flesh on on those bones, to say the least.
0: Before the session began, what did you both feel you were really hoping to hear in the session? What were the questions you wanted him to answer?
5: As we investigated the government's response uh, to the pandemic over the past year, it became increasingly clear to us that there had been a series of very flagrant untruths told by the government. So we were intrigued to see whether Cummings would come clean. And the questions were, the government's claim that our pandemic planning was the best in the world. The claim that the Prime Minister had been showing strong leadership on the virus at the beginning of the pandemic. The claim that the government had not been pursuing a herd immunity strategy. The claim that the government had made the right decisions at the right time in terms of lockdown. And certainly, just as an aside to that, Hancock had claimed in the summer that nobody died because of the delay in locking down, um, which we saw as one of the most extraordinary untruths um, that we, we'd almost ever heard in our lives. So we, we were intrigued to see whether Cummings would address Hancock's relationship with the truth.
7: Because so we had made the point in the book that Dominic Cummings made when he was asked, well, give me an example of one of Matt Hancock's untruths. And he, and he said quite simply, it was the claim that Everybody was given the care they needed during the first wave. And we'd done huge amounts of work on this and, and, we, and it just simply wasn't true. There was chaos in the hospitals and lots of people didn't receive the care they deserved. I
5: suppose the most pressing question that we wanted to hear coming to the count on was how Johnson justified his decision in September last year to not lock down, despite the fact that he'd promised to do so in April.
0: You've watched the whole marathon seven hours. I'm fascinated to know what you found new and most interesting. So talk me through it. I mean, starting with the whole session began with Dominic Cummings issuing an apology. What did you make of that?
7: It's in great contrast to the government who've never kind of accepted that they got anything wrong, as far as I can see. You know, we did several articles last year for the Sunday Times. We would send them long right of the reply letters, and I don't think think they ever accepted any mistakes, did they, George?
5: No, I mean, they specifically said that we made the right decisions at the right time was their mantra. So there you go. That's them saying that they got nothing wrong, isn't it?
7: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Tell me about his description of... Boris Johnson in the run-up to that first lockdown. You've written extensively about this, but what surprised you about everything he described?
5: So we'd written about how Boris missed those first five COBRA meetings on the virus throughout January and February, and had taken a holiday in the middle of February. But Cummings certainly provided some new detail about Johnson's attitude to the virus. He made a speech in Greenwich where he'd called it responding to the virus as an irrational panic.
6: Welcome everybody.
0: This was Boris Johnson's first public mention of the virus on the 3rd of February 2020.
6: There is a risk that new diseases such as coronavirus will trigger a panic and a desire for market segregation that go beyond what is medically rational. At that moment, humanity needs some government somewhere that is willing at least to make the case powerfully for freedom of exchange.
5: So we had a sense of it, but we weren't aware that he had described it privately, as, uh, according to Cummings, as a scare story and had suggested that Chris Whitty should inject him live on TV with COVID to show how harmless it was.
1: That was extraordinary. In February, the prime minister regarded this as um, just a, a scare story. He, he regarded, he d- described it as the new swine flu.
6: Did you tell him it wasn't?
1: Certainly. But the view of various officials inside Number 10 was, um, if we have the Prime Minister chairing Cobra meetings and he just tells everyone, it's swine flu, don't worry about it, I'm going to get Chris Whitney to inject me live on TV with coronavirus so everyone realises it's nothing to be frightened of, that would be, that would not help actually serious panic. It seems like
5: officials, according to Cummings, officials were glad that he wasn't at those COPRA meetings because they felt that his views on the virus would be extremely unhelpful to their plans to tackle it.
3: Or did he let things go
4: so far before they reacted?
0: That's Cameron Wellington's parents, Norman
3: and Jane again.
4: And to hear that he was even talking about being injected with COVID in front of the cameras,
3: just to... um... Dispel the fears that it was actually even dangerous.
4: It's just like rubbing salt in her bones.
3: It's like he's mocking you.
7: We knew that Boris wasn't there and that's what we'd written and we knew that he wasn't giving leadership and really didn't engage with it until the very end of February, the beginning of March. Coing's account is that Boris disregarded a swine flu. Boris says he wanted to be the mayor from Jaws because the mayor from Jaws is the man who kept the beaches open when the shark was eating all the people. And he's made jokes about that publicly in the past. And he was obviously continuing to say that that's that's what he believed in, i.e., he believed in keeping the economy open, regardless of the threat. Cummings was very clear on was that the Prime Minister in that period regarded the threat not being the virus, but the threat being the overreaction to the virus, which might damage the economy.
1: The Prime Minister said all the way through February and through the first half of March, the real danger here isn't this new swine flu thing, it's that the reaction to it is going to, is going to cripple the economy. And to be fair to the Prime Minister, although I think he was completely wrong, lots
7: of other senior people in Whitehall had the same view. The Prime Minister got it completely wrong in that period. And although we kind of written about that before, to hear it in Cummings' words and in those terms and to hear him joking about going on live TV being injected by Chris Whitty was quite extraordinary.
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he was joking. That's the thing. Because even on the Jaws point, we always felt that that was kind of a half joke. But it wasn't a joke. It has killed thousands of people. When they were suggesting that we have a strict border policy to quell this virus's importation into this country... According to Cummings, he was saying that he
1: wasn't interested in that because he wanted to be the mayor in Jaws. His argument after that happened was, literally, quote, I should have been the mayor of Jaws and kept the beaches open. That's that's what he said on many, many occasions.
5: That was his reason for not stopping the virus flooding in from China and Europe. So it's not a joke. It's That was his actual viewpoint.
0: Was there a sense from what Cummings was saying that Boris Johnson just sort of had too many other things going on in the background. He was distracted. Cummings even managed to mention Dylan the dog at one point.
1: And then to add to the, it sounds so surreal, it couldn't possibly be true. That day, the Times had run a huge story about the prime minister and his girlfriend and their dog. And the prime minister's girlfriend was going completely crackers about this story and demanding that the press office deal with that.
0: You sort of think there's there's clearly a very domestic as in within number 10, (laughs) very separate agenda to to what's going on in the country.
7: Yeah, that was an extraordinary passage. It was a bit like something from the West Wing. They had Trump calling in that day to say, we want you to help us bomb Iraq.
1: Part of the building was saying, are we going to bomb Iraq? Part of the building was arguing about whether or not we're going to do quarantine or not do quarantine. The prime minister has his girlfriend going crackers about something completely trivial. And you have all of these meetings kind of going on through the course of through the course of the twelfth.
7: And meanwhile, Cummings was trying to press the Prime Minister to actually get to grips with the fact that the policy that they were following on coronavirus was going to be disastrous.
0: In terms of sort of his attitude going into that first lockdown, and you know the moment he says is thinking about being injected live on TV with a virus to share everybody, it doesn't matter. Was there a sense that, he wasn't alone. This was the attitude within Number 10.
5: Well, that, that was purely born out of the fact that they had this herd immunity policy, which they've, they've, they've been trying to deny for more than a year now. But it was absolutely clear that that's what it was. I and mean, it, was, it was clear from their own action plan that they published in the beginning of March.
6: Of course, no one wants
1: this to happen. No one wanted any of it to happen. But the point was... Herd immunity was regarded as an unavoidable fact.
5: And then it was actually verbalised and expressed directly. Patrick Valence on Sky News and BBC
8: Radio. To try and reduce the peak, broaden the peak, not to suppress it completely... Also, because most people, the vast majority of people, get a mild illness to build up some degree of herd immunity as well, so that more people are immune to this disease.
5: It was absolutely clear that that's what they were doing. And Cummings expressed his absolute bewilderment that number 10 has been trying to deny that.
1: Herd immunity by September in a single wave was the official plan A. That's on the COBRA document that I shared with you, as it's described, the optimal single peak strategy.
5: This was kind of colourfully illustrated because he says that in that second week
1: of March... The cabinet secretary said, Prime Minister, you should go on TV tomorrow and explain to people the herd immunity plan and that it's like the old chicken pox parties. We, we need people to get this disease because that's how we get herd immunity by September. And I said, Mark, you've got to stop using this chicken pox analogy. It's, it's, not, it's not right. And he said, why? And Ben Warner said, because chickenpox is not spreading exponentially and killing hundreds of thousands of people.
5: So that strongly suggests that the government did want people to become infected, which is completely opposite of what they've been claiming in public.
0: Coming up, the questions that still need to be answered at the COVID inquiry. But first, here's a short dispatch from the front line.
2: I'm Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: Talk me through what we learned from the evidence during the session about how there was a moment of realisation that they had the wrong policies, things weren't working. What most surprised you about that?
7: What seems to happen is the government were definitely employing a strategy that would have led to herd immunity. What they wanted to do was have a big first wave so that this might give protection uh, from a second wave in the autumn because everybody would have been infected. They feared if they didn't do that, then they might have an even bigger second wave in the autumn when traditionally, you know, kind of things like flu, et cetera, are worse. It didn't make sense.
1: The government published a document on the 3rd, which was the contain, mitigate, delay thing. When we got that document, right, we have been told for weeks, we've got all of these plans in place, et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. When we got this document, we leafed through it and Ben Warner literally said, this is the press release. Where's the actual plan? This is the plan. No, 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 this is the press release.
7: Where's the actual plan? According to Cummings' account, it was a man he had employed called Ben Warner and, and Ben Warner's brother, Mark, who seemed to be kind of data specialist. He
1: came to me on the 7th of March and he had been in various meetings about the official plan.
7: And they seemed to have completely freaked mm-hmm. Cummings out.
1: It seems to me that people, um, this plan could easily be mad it could be incredibly destructive.
7: So he, he, he did eventually persuade the prime minister that it was important to do Plan B. But even then, he couldn't persuade the prime minister to do it instantly.
1: On the night of the 11th, I, I texted the group of with the prime minister and um, and the chief scientific advisor. The cabinet office is terrifying. Shit. No plans, totally behind the pace. We must announce today, not next week. We're looking at hundred to 500,000 deaths between optimistic and pessimistic scenarios.
0: I mean, that's quite stark. There was also a sense, you wrote about this last year, but we were supposed to have one of the best pandemic plans in the world. But when it was tested, everything seemed to fall apart. Dominic Cummings described a really shocking scene where a civil servant describes that.
1: At this point, the second most powerful official in the country, Helen McNamara, is the Deputy Cabinet Secretary. She walked into the office while we're looking at this whiteboard. She says, I've just been talking to the official, Mark Sweeney, who is in charge of coordinating with the Department for Health. He said, quote, I've been told for years that there is a whole plan for this. There is no plan. We're in huge trouble. Helen Mcmararo said, "I've come through here to the Prime Ministers Office to tell you all, quote, "I think we are absolutely f***. You
0: know, if you ignore the unparliamentary language there, it's clearly a real sense of panic. What did you make of that?
7: very much chimed with what insiders within Downing Street told us at the time, that there was this kind of feeling of inertia that people would say to each other, this can't be serious because if it's serious, we'd be doing something, but we're not doing anything. In a funny way, I think we all could see the car crash. It did feel a lot like we were living in a disaster movie, didn't it?
1: This is like a scene from Independence Day with Jeff Goldblum saying, the aliens are here and your whole plan is broken and you need a new plan, right? That is what the scene was like that morning. you are being shown all of these graphs about time to peak of the epidemic in June, but this is all completely wrong. The NHS is going to be smashed in weeks.
5: I remember sitting in my office and I remember there was a case. Someone in the office was infected. You can see other countries, and this was actually missing from the testimony, was the international context of what was going on in that period.
6: France is just hours away from a nationwide lockdown. Italy locking down the entire country.
5: Spain then locked down and France locked down by the
8: 17th. The delay is to maximise the effect.
5: They were trying to achieve herd immunity and they did start to explain that.
8: In terms of building up a herd immunity, Within the UK, what, I mean, what sort of percentage of people need to have contracted the virus? Probably about sixty percent or so. Sixty percent.
5: But then as soon as they explained it, the reaction from the public was so appalled that they then had to try and cover it all up.
8: I mean, even with that, even looking at the sort of the best case scenario, one percent fatality—that's an awful lot of people dying in this country. The public can be assured that the whole of the UK is always well prepared for these types of outbreaks. And we'll remain During vigilant the session, and
0: Dominic Cummings reserved a lot of his most damning criticisms for Matt Hancock.
1: I think that the Secretary of State for Health should have been fired for at least 15, 20 things, including lying to everybody in multiple occasions, in meeting after meeting in the, in the Cabinet Room and publicly. Rosie. Oh dear. Is that something you'd heard?
7: That was new to me, I have to say. I didn't know that. uh, He said at one point, he, he almost said every day to the Prime Minister that he should fire Matt Hancock. I mean, there were some serious allegations in there.
1: Hancock told us in the Cabinet Room that people were going to be tested before they went back to care homes.
7: What the hell happened? He had assured the Prime Minister that everybody would be tested.
8: Right from the start, we've tried to throw a protective ring around our care homes.
7: And then only later did they realise that this had not been the case.
1: Now, all the government rhetoric was, we put a shield around care homes and blah, blah, blah. It was complete nonsense.
7: Then he had a conversation with the Prime Minister in which they both said, but Hancock had assured us about it.
1: The Cabinet Secretary said to the Prime Minister in almost the first meeting when he came back, Prime Minister... The British system is not set up to deal with a Secretary of State who repeatedly lies in meetings.
7: And that is a really serious allegation.
1: Do you think
4: people should be worried about facing corporate manslaughter charges?
1: I don't know about that because I don't really know what the kind of laws are. Let's
4: separate some of these out. So
0: with the testing in particular, there was sort of an implication that he was saying things that would help his political career rather than the health of the nation.
5: That's right. Uh, Cummings said that Hancock made that big claim that there would be 100,000 tests by the end of April. So 100,000 a day. Cummings had this plan to build up the testing program, but he describes Hancock ringing around all the testing people trying to persuade them to gerrymander and inflate the testing figures to make sure that he hit his 100,000 target by the end of April and Cummings describes having to ring round people saying, please ignore
7: him.
1: It was criminal, disgraceful behaviour that caused
5: serious harm. Which again is, is an incredibly serious allegation.
7: They did actually, I mean, you know, they slightly massaged the figures, but they did more or less get to 100,000. So we kind of gave them a bit of slack on that. What we hadn't realised, and that's the differences with Cummings' account of it, is that this caused mayhem for the bigger process going on, which was designed to really ramp up testing to much, much more.
0: So it actually slowed things down in the end. Yeah. It's such a shocking claim to think at a time like that any minister would be putting political point scoring above a long-term strategy. From what you know of what was happening behind the scenes, how do we assess those claims?
5: It's it's hard for us to know the truth on that.
8: I welcome the opportunity to come to the House to put formally on the record that these unsubstantiated allegations around honesty are not true and that I've been straight with people.
0: So he's clearly denying all of the allegations and insisting he's been honest and open throughout. What do you make of that from everything that you've looked at in looking at the Cummings evidence?
7: We obviously don't know what he said in private to the Prime Minister. On the other hand, we've seen what he said in public. And on such issues as everybody got all the care they needed, he's simply wrong. On such issues as we didn't lock down too late, he's simply wrong and saying that there was no herd immunity, again, he's wrong. There is kind of a pattern of these kind of statements from him, which are big and bold. And it's very, very difficult to understand how he could make those claims.
0: From Cummings' evidence, there was a sense of nobody really knowing who was in charge.
1: You know that Spider-Man meme, with Spider-Man, both the Spider-Mans pointing at each other, but it's like that, but with everybody. So you have Hancock pointing at the permanent secretary, and you have the permanent secretary pointing at Hancock, and they're both pointing at the Cabinet Office, the Cabinet Office is pointing back at them, and all the different Spider-Mans are all pointing at each other, saying you're responsible.
0: But I suppose we do have to remember it's through the prism of Dominic Cummings. You've written a lot about the autumn when there should have been a circuit breaker lockdown, there wasn't one. He places everything squarely on the prime minister's shoulders. How should we read that?
7: I think one of the big things that came out of that was, I don't think anyone had realized this, was that according to Cummings, the prime minister regretted having a lockdown at all.
1: He didn't think in July or September you know, thank goodness we did the first lockdown, it was obviously the right thing to do, etc., etc. His argument then was, we shouldn't have done the first lockdown and I'm not going to make the same mistake again.
5: It's hard to believe, really, isn't it? It would be hard to believe, apart from the fact that when it came to it in the second wave, he then made the mistake again, but did it even worse, and he did it deliberately. And the results of of that we've had another 100,000 deaths.
0: If that circuit breaker lockdown had gone ahead, if they had listened to the scientists, if they'd locked down earlier, I mean, what impact would that have had on your lives?
4: If we'd had locked it down earlier in the first place, maybe all these people wouldn't have passed away. He even had discovered himself, so he shouldn't know what it's like.
3: I think the spread, it would have cared the spread, it probably would have, wouldn't
4: it? Yeah, his son might have still been here.
7: We could never really understand it. It just seemed to us when Boris Johnson came out of his illness in April, he gave a speech in which he seemed to have got it.
6: Good morning. I'm sorry I've been away from my desk. So I know it is tough and I want to get this economy moving as fast as I can, but I refuse to throw away all the effort and the sacrifice of the British people and to risk a second major outbreak and huge loss of life and the overwhelming of the NHS.
5: Johnson justified ignoring his own advice, leading Britain into exactly what he predicted in the winter.
7: Yeah, in fact, we wrote back in, I think it must have been at the end of last year, didn't we? We wrote about how Dominic Cummings' relationship with the Prime Minister had fallen apart over the the Prime Minister's decision not to go for a circuit break and lockdown in September. And at the time, Downing Street said this was just simply not true, that his departure had nothing to do with that. But we learnt from Dominic Cummings' own mouth that, in fact, he almost resigned at that point.
1: What I ought to have done is said to him then... I'm resigning in 48 hours. We can do this one way, we can do this the other way. If you announce that you're going to have a lockdown and take serious action now, I will leave, go quietly, we're all friends. If you don't, I'll call a press conference and say, the prime minister's making a terrible decision that's gonna kill thousands of people. And I should have gambled on holding a gun to his head, essentially.
7: And what's interesting about what Cummings says about the call for a second lockdown in september is that he very much puts i mean he's quite cummings is quite isn't it's not as scathing about boris in the first lockdown he kind of spreads the blame a bit but on that decision he absolutely puts it squarely on the shoulders of boris johnson and no one else and if you remember I don't know cummings didn't say this boris took that decision on a sunday night late september on the monday morning
8: good morning everybody um I'm Patrick Vallance, the government chief scientific advisor, and I'm here with uh, Chris Whitty. The two chief scientists were so
7: furious that they actually held their own press conference.
8: 50,000 cases per day would be expected to lead a month later, so the middle of November, say, to 200 plus deaths per day.
7: And they were absolutely right. It was absolutely unforgivable, and many scientists have said this to us, not to do so in September.
0: It's quite clear the economy versus health had become the real front line of the debate. He's very careful not to blame, for example, Rishi Sunak.
5: Yeah, that was the one thing that we felt was inconsistent. Sunak was very clear that he'd agreed with the decision not to have the circuit breaker lockdown in September In fact, in Parliament at the end of October, he said...
8: And we should only enact such measures, Mr Speaker, when it becomes truly unavoidable.
5: They should only lock down at the very last moment when there was no other course of action. Our understanding was that he had been encouraging Boris through that period to ignore the scientists. It does suggest that he has a very close friendship with Sunak and he really felt like he needed to
1: protect him.
0: In terms of his relationship with Boris Johnson, he was... Very
1: scathing. Fundamentally, I regarded him as unfit for the job and I was trying to create a structure around him to try and stop what I thought were extremely bad decisions and push other things through against his wishes.
5: What was quite extraordinary was Cummings confirming that Johnson, at the end of October, when he was finally being forced into locking down because we were once again faced with a complete disaster in the hospitals, was saying things like, let the bodies pile high, and COVID only kills 80-year-olds.
6: Leader of the Opposition, Kirsten.
5: Boris
0: Johnson denies making those remarks.
6: Did he make those remarks? No, Mr Speaker.
0: You've both reported a lot on on what was happening in Whitehall and in Number 10 in the run-up to both of the lockdowns. Every time you wrote those articles, there was a real backlash from Number 10. You were told that the articles were inaccurate. There was a lot of criticism from, from government. Do you feel vindicated having heard Dominic Cummings?
5: We certainly feel like his testimony corroborates a lot of our reporting. I mean, It is very refreshing to have somebody who was actually in the room come out and, and honestly say what happened in a detailed way going through his texts and his messages and picking out meetings and actually, you know, telling us what was said in them. You know, I think his account is incredibly important because it, I think it will help the inquiry, when it happens, get to the truth of what happened.
2: The very worst day of my life was losing my dad. And for seven hours I had that moment replayed again and again.
0: Lobby Akinola lost his father, Olafemi, to COVID in April 2020.
2: When you lose someone to coronavirus, one of the hardest parts is how quickly they just go. Someone full of life just disappears in an instant and there's nothing you can do about it. And learning that time and again something could have been done, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy.
0: Watching the session was was pretty heartbreaking, to be honest. Sophia Engar lost her father, Zahari. He was 68. The the leader of the government would willingly let bodies pile high in the corridors rather than allow another lockdown. That was why my dad died. You know, my dad was actually one of those bodies, and he was a human, and he gave nearly 40 years of his life to the NHS as a psychotherapist. At his funeral, they had to use diggers to dig up the graves in front of us because at the time that he died in the second wave, there were 11 bodies being buried every day.
3: He just reacted white or light. He saw how the numbers were stacking up.
0: That's Cameron Wellington's parents, Norman and Jane again.
4: The comments he's made as well, um, Boris Johnson, about the body stack high. That's my son, and he's, he's coming out with that.
0: How cruel is that? Steve and I got married in September, so it's quite strange to be referring to him as my husband because we were only married for three weeks. Fran Hall lost her husband Steve in the second wave. He was, you know, a big, strong, healthy guy. He was 65. We watched what was happening from January last year. We saw what was happening in Italy. We saw all of that being played out in front of us in real time. I've always known that it was avoidable. It's the very first time that somebody right in the centre of government has actually had the decency to admit that they have failed us. Personally, I really appreciated it. For an awful lot of people watching at home, you know, they will have known people who died or who suffered hellishly through the pandemic. And there are still so many questions about how we got here. What are you hoping the inquiry will reveal that we don't now know.
5: I have to admit that when I listened to some of the testimony, because we, we we spent quite a lot of time speaking to some of the Brie families, I, I actually did shed a tear. And I just put myself into the shoes of the relatives of those people and hearing the way, the way the Prime Minister is alleged to have described his feelings towards the fact that people were going to die as a result of his inaction, it just...
7: It just sent chills chills down my spine. Well, hopefully an inquiry will be able to summon the Prime Minister under oath, the um, Health Secretary, and we will hear from the Cabinet Secretary, Mark Sedwell, as well, who's supposed to have said those things about Matt Hancock and it will have access to all the communications between the politicians. And it will get us to a deeper understanding of where the decision-making went awry. It's kind of imperative that it's held now, not next year, because we need the lessons to be learned now, because we are still in a fairly serious situation.
0: What do you want that inquiry to do? Are, Are there questions you still want answered?
2: What happened with PPE? Why were we so underprepared?
0: What was the reason for our government choosing not to go for elimination, like New Zealand did?
2: Why were people of colour so disproportionately affected?
0: I'd like to know why we didn't take that time to reflect. In September, the second wave was absolutely catastrophic.
2: Why did we not protect our borders?
0: Yesterday... The Insight team reported that ministers knew the Indian variant was in the UK on the 1st of April, two weeks before telling the public. Senior political sources said trade talks with the Indian government and fears that vaccine supplies might be halted might explain why travel restrictions were delayed. Downing Street told the Sunday Times, prior to India being placed on the red list, Anyone coming to the UK had to test negative and quarantine for 10 days. Our first priority is protecting the public and saving lives. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests... Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot, the Sunday Times Insight Team. You can find all of their reporting at thetimes.co.uk and their book, Failures of State, was published in March. We also heard from Jane and Norman Wellington, Fran Hall, Sophia Engar and Lobby Akinola. We'd like to thank the COVID-19 Bereaved Families for Justice group for putting us in touch. The producer was James Shield. Sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, please do get in touch. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you soon.